welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Let's, let's pray together. And what I'm going to have us do is we're going to have the words of the Lord's Prayer up on the screen here. We're going to pray together out loud um, the words of the Lord's Prayer. Um, just follow along with me. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Father, that is our prayer this morning as we come before you, Lord. We want nothing more than for your name to be lifted up, For you to be glorified, not any person here, not any institution, but your name to be glorified. Lord, we we as we address you, we know that we're coming to you as our Father. We thank you that in Jesus Christ our sins have been removed, and that is such a great gift to us because we know that we have done things that ought not to be done, and we have left undone things that you have clearly told us to do. And so we come before you now, Lord, as those who need forgiveness from your hand and receive it from Jesus. And we're so thankful that now we can call you Father. We no longer call you our um, condemning judge. Before we had Jesus, Lord, we we stood before you, and you were a judge that required 100% perfection, which we did not have. And yet you've sent your Son to be our righteousness, to allow us to come into your presence. And we thank you for that, that you are our Father. You are our Father in heaven. You have all power, Lord. As we come before you and we ask these things, we know that we come to the greatest King of all who can do anything he wants. And so, Lord, we pray. We pray that your name would be hallowed. We pray that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven, that your will would be done here. Lord, we know that that's ultimately fulfilled when your Son returns. But, Lord, even now, in our hearts, in our families, in our church, in our community, Lord, we pray you would bring your kingdom here, that your will would be done in new ways that glorify you. Um, We pray, Lord, for you to give us our daily bread, both the needs that we have physically, um, the needs that we have spiritually, relationally, and Lord, the needs that we have from your word today. We need to hear your word today. We need to be fed with the food from heaven, and so we pray, Lord, that you'd feed us. We're so thankful that you have been so faithful to do this over and over again every Sunday. And Lord, we just we look forward with anticipation. We're here to hear from you. Um, we pray, Lord, that you would forgive us our debts. Um, Lord, we have any sin that we have not confessed yet, we pray, Lord, that even now, even in their own minds and their own hearts, Lord, that you would help us to confess our sins and to turn from them. Lord, as we t- hear the word and as we take the Lord's Supper, we pray it be a great time of returning to you, a renewal and refreshment with you. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to forgive those who have sinned against us, Lord. We know, Lord, that that is a command. We must do that. And we pray, Lord, that you would even now, even during the service, free us to be able to forgive those who we have not forgiven, whether they're in our own family or friends or in this church or uh, distant people, maybe people at work, whatever it is, Lord, we pray that you would help us to forgive. We pray, Lord, too, lead us not into temptation. We pray, Lord, that you would, as we encounter these trials, protect us from succumbing to temptation, protect us from succumbing to, as it says, the evil one. Deliver us from the evil one, we pray. 
Lord, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And Lord, as we're in here and we're learning, we pray, Lord, for the children that are in children's ministry. We, we thank you for all the, the people that are helping in there and teaching in there. And we thank you for the, the curriculum and how they're studying the Bible, just as we are in those other rooms. And we pray, you, Lord, you bless that. We pray these kids would have just a wonderful foundation of truth and a wonderful respect and love for your word and a, um, a responsive heart to your word. We pray that you would save our children. Lord, we pray that you bring them to saving faith. Um, Lord, we also pray for Holly, a missionary. We pray to protection. Thank you for her work. We look forward to her coming out and seeing us. Lord, but we pray you'd protect her. We pray you'd make her fruitful. pray for many more girls to be rescued out of trafficking. Um, Lord, we pray for Lorian, and uh, just as we were able to talk to her a couple weeks ago, and we, we pray, Lord, that you would protect her and that you would give her great fruitfulness and continue to give her that boldness and courage and joy that we saw so evidently as we were hearing from her. And we pray, Lord, that you would just give her an incredible kingdom fruit there, Lord, that many would come to know you through those efforts. We pray for the churches locally. We pray for Canyon Lake Community Church as they're doing service, Lord. We pray that you would bless them in their time in the Word and in worship. We pray for uh, Faith Bible Church Menifee and uh, Jake and Danny and Daniel, the elders over there. We pray you bless them as they're shepherding the people, Lord. We pray that the gifts be evident in their church and that many would um, come to know you through that church. We pray for um, the View Church up in Sun City, Lord, and in their kind of newer place that they're meeting in. We pray, Lord, that you be blessing them. We, we pray for Revival Church as they're unpacking the word this morning. Lord, I was uh, so blessed by a message I listened to recently from them, and i just thankful for his heart to unpack your word faithfully, and I pray, Lord, that you would bless them. Pray for uh, Center Church uh, with Thor. Uh, the pastor there, and the new school that they're going to be in next week, and we just pray that it would be a great uh, building of their church, Lord. We thank you so much, and we, we pray speak to us in this word, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're in this brand new series in James, and uh, last week James was talking to us about giving us instructions on how to endure through trials. This week he switches the topic to temptation. We're going to be in verses 13 through 18, and you'll see that there's a switch. In 12, he was talking about being faithful under trial, and then in 13, he starts talking about temptation. There's a switch there between verses 12 and 13, if you can see that there. And that word, parasimos, can be translated either way. It's interesting that the verse for temptation, the word for temptation, the word for trial are the same word there in the Greek. And there's a switch between uh, verses 12 and 13 because the context demands it. And what he says in verse 13 is that God does try us. He, he does give us trials. He does give us testing, but he never tempts us. He never tempts us, but he does try us. Look at verse 13. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God does give his people trials or tests. We can look through the Old Testament and we can see examples of that, right? Abraham was tested by God, tried by God. Um, Israel was, Judges 2, they were tested and tried by God. Uh, Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles was tested and tried by God. God does test and try our faith. He gives us trials, but he never tempts us. Never tempts us. You think, what's the difference? What's the difference between trial and temptation? How can it be that God gives us trials and tests, but not temptation? The difference, guys, is intent. Trials are intended for your good, to build up your faith. Temptation is intended for you to fall into sin. God gives us trials not to break our faith, but to give us opportunities for our faith. You guys remember the diagram from last week, that our faith, if we remain steadfast under trial, these, these trials, these testings, they, they give us 
steadfastness, and then that steadfastness, if we let it have its perfect work, makes us perfect and complete, lacking nothing, verse 4. And also, God gives us the benefit of the crown of life in the world to come, verse 12. And so that's God's intention with the difficulties that come into our lives, is that the testing in that trial in verse 2 would be something that we would uh, remain steadfast under, and then we would be made more like Christ, perfect and complete, lacking nothing, and obtain the crown of life. He has good intentions through our trials. And it makes sense, guys, that in the Greek, it's the same word for trial and temptation because trials are a time of great temptation, aren't they? Every trial is a time of great temptation. It's a time of great confusion. It can even be a time of, of deception. It can be a time when we start to be deceived into trusting our own desires. It can be a time when we're deceived into tr- uh, mistrust or distrusting God and his desires. And actually, our verse has that exact structure. If you take a look at verse 16, it's kind of a hinge verse here, and I've got a little diagram about it here. But if you look at verse 16, so we're in 13 through 18, 16's right in the middle. And right in the middle, he says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. And you might think, well, which thing is he talking about? Is he talking about what came before? Like, don't be deceived that, um, about your own desires and that temptation comes from within? Or should we not be deceived thinking that God isn't good? Verses 17 through 18. I think it's both. I think that it's kind of a, a hinge um, command there. Do not be deceived. And he's pointing in both directions. Don't be deceived by your own desires, up here 13 through 15. And also, don't be deceived in distrusting God's goodness verses 17 through 18. And those really are the core temptations, aren't they? Those are the core temptations. In any trial, in any temptation, you start to think, well, you know, maybe I know better than God. I know God's commanded these things, but I'm in a real tough spot. Maybe I know better. Or maybe God really, his commands aren't for my good. Have you guys ever felt like that when you're in a time of trial? That, you know, maybe you should just trust what I'm thinking to do. I know it doesn't really fit with God's word, but I think I know what I need to do to make things right in my life. Or you start to think like, you know, maybe God's holding out on me. Maybe following God, I'm going to lose out on on things that I should have. And so what James wants to tell us here is that when you're tempted, you should make sure that you trust God and not yourself. Trust God and not yourself. That would be the simplest way to talk about this passage. First, when you're tempted, don't trust your own desires. That's in verses um, 13 through 15. Sin, guys, grows through self-deception, doesn't it? Sin grows through self-deception. Our lies, the lies we tell ourselves, are like a greenhouse that allows sin to grow in our lives. It allows the perfect conditions for that. And that's why sometimes when you're trying to walk free from a particular habitual sin, one of the first things a lot of times we need to do is stop lying. Stop lying to the people around us. Stop lying to the people closest to us. And stop lying to ourselves. One of the biggest lies that we tend to believe, guys, is that I'll believe that I'm basically a good person with good desires that I should follow, right? Isn't that what our culture teaches us? I'm basically a good person with good desires that I should follow. Our culture tells us this all the time. Anywhere from a Disney movie to the memes that you post on social media, follow your heart, you know, follow your passion, uh, follow your desires, you know what's best for you, you do you, right? It's all, you're basically a good person with good desires that you should follow. And we see that in verse 13, he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. What's the logic behind that? Logic behind that is, if I'm basically a good person with good desires and I'm sinning, it must not be my fault. It must be God's fault. It must be that God has somehow stacked the deck against me or put me in a situation where sin is unavoidable. 
You ever felt like that? You ever felt like you were backed in a corner and sin was unavoidable? What he's saying here is he's saying that sin is never, guys, unavoidable. God never puts us in a situation where sin is unavoidable. You can think about like um, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, you know, um, that there's always a way of escape. God is faithful. Nothing's overtaking you. It's not common to man. Um, sometimes we can think that God's put us in a situation where sin is unavoidable. Maybe a life situation, you know. Uh, I'm in a single situation. Sin's unavoidable because I'm single. Or I'm married, and, and sin is unavoidable because look at who I'm married to. You know, that goes all the way back to the garden, right? When, when Adam was confronted about his sin, he says, it's the wife you gave me. Who's he blaming? He's blaming God, ultimately, right? And so we can think that somehow our life situation, you know, these kids, you know, how could I not react in anger because I have these children? Or how could I not react in this way because of my spouse? Or you've seen my workplace. There's no way that I could avoid sinning in this place. It's blame shifting, guys. And sometimes we shift the blame to God. Um, you hear it with people that say, you know what? I was born with these desires. I was born with these desires. It must be that God wants me to act these out because he wouldn't have given me these desires if he didn't want me to live this way. What are we saying? We're saying it's God, right? That God has somehow tempted us. Um, we can think sometimes that God approves of sin because we're in a difficult situation. You know, we can start to think, well, I know what the Bible says, but I'm in a really unique situation. I'm the exception here. You guys ever felt like that? You ever felt like that? I, I encounter that a lot when I'm talking with somebody that's contemplating divorce and they don't have biblical grounds for divorce. And they'll say things like, I know what the Bible says, but God would want me to be happy. Or I know what the Bible says, but God's given me a peace about it. I can guarantee that peace didn't come from God, by the way. I know exactly where that peace came from and it didn't come from God, right? Because guys, God cannot be tempted by evil. You can't be in a situation and talk God into something being okay that his word has said is not okay. I actually had a, a, a lady talk to me. She goes, you know, what, you know, what do you believe about divorce? And I, I told her what I believed about divorce. And she goes, yeah, but, you know, do we always have to do that? And I'm like, yeah, that's what God teaches about in, in here. And she goes, you know, I was just wondering, are, do you take kind of a legalistic approach that we have to, like, do what's in the Bible? And I'm like, that's not legalism, okay? That's called Christianity, you know? So, um, but God cannot be tempted by evil. We can't somehow, you know, be in a situation that God knows my heart and he's cool with it. He can't be tempted by evil. He's not going to come on your side with this. We tend to believe the lie that we're basically good people with good desires that we should follow. And James says in verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? His own desires. Okay. James says, don't be deceived. The evil that's in your life, it came from you. Didn't come from your situation, didn't come from outside of you, certainly didn't come from God. It came from you. Evil comes from within you. So that's countercultural. Welcome to church, right? <laughs> Welcome to church. Good morning. Evil comes from within you. And you say, well, you know, I don't know about that. Guys, Jesus agrees with this. He says, from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts and sexual morality and theft and murder and adultery and covetousness and wickedness and deceit and sensuality and envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within a person. That's what Jesus says. Jesus says that if we are in sin, it came from inside us. In uh, the early 20th century, the London Times sent out a famous question, uh, question to a bunch of famous um, authors. And the question was, what's wrong with the world? And one of the people they sent it to was G.K. Chesterton, and he wrote back a very simple answer to what's wrong with the world. He wrote, Dear Sir, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. 
right? He said, I'm the problem with the world. And until we come to that place where we believe that the problems in the world are coming from our own hearts, we'll never be free. We'll never be free as long as we're blaming our situation or all other people. What's wrong with the world? Where does, where does evil come from? It comes from within our own hearts. And James gives us two wonderful illustrations about how evil kind of takes us over from the heart. He has two illustrations here, and they're verse 14 and 15. One's fishing, and one's embryology. It's really fun. He's, he's great at illustrations. Verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. First illustration, verse 14, is fishing. Right? He says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Uh, fishing illustration. Because fishing's about lying. Right? Isn't it? Fishing is a big game of lying. And I'm not just talking about what size your fish were. I'm talking about you got to lie to that fish, right? you got to lie to that fish. No fish willingly gets hooked, dragged, and gutted. Okay? No fish is like, cool, sign me up, right? They have to be tricked. Same with you. You have to be tricked. Nobody's going to, you know, if they saw all the terms and conditions of sin and what it brings and stuff, would go sign me up. You have to be tricked. Guys, sin is a baited hook. It deceives you. Sin promises something it will never give you. And in the end, you end up hooked, dragged, and gutted. Right? And yet we keep doing it. This is the weird part, right? Because most fish learn not to do that. If you're fishing in a lake, you pull a fish in, and for some reason you have mercy, throw him back in. He doesn't usually, and unless he's an extremely stupid fish, do you catch him again. I have had that happen, but that's pretty, pretty rare. But not for us, guys. If you're stuck in a cycle of habitual sin, you probably believe the same lies over and over again. And so if you're going to come to a place where you're going to be successful against temptation, you have to be smarter than a fish, right? We have to get smarter than a fish. Every gutted fish has two things in common. They lingered around the bait, and then they believed the bait's lie, okay? There was always a lingering and there was always a believing of lies. First, the lingering. Look at verse 14. He says, each person is tempted when he is lured by his own desire. That word lured is like dragged, you know? And I don't think this is yet talking about the fish being reeled in. I think this is about the magnetic draw of sin, of temptation. That there's, sin has a magnetic draw to it. That the closer you are to it, the stronger it is. It's like being near a black hole. The closer you are to the black hole, the stronger the pull. The closer you linger around sin, the stronger it pulls you in. It's not smart, guys, for us to hang around the bait and see if the gravity will drag us in. And yet we often do. Proverbs 5.8, warning his son against adultery, he says about the adulteress, keep your way far from her house. Do not go near her door. Right? A lot of us don't have that kind of sense that we need to stay far. Um, This lingering is the difference between Joseph and King David, right? Joseph ran. King David lingered. He thought about it a little more. And I just want to ask you this morning, are there people or accounts that you need to unfollow online? Are there people that right now you need to stop private messaging, right? Are there there things that you should stop watching? Are Are there people you need to avoid, Are there websites you need to quit going to? Are there food and drink that you need to stop stocking in your house? And say, well, you know, I fell into alcoholism again. I fell into drunkenness again. And it's like, well, where did you get it? In my cupboard. It's like, well, you know, or somebody has a really hard time controlling what they eat and stuff like that, you know. Um, 
don't stock it in your house. The closer you are to something, the stronger the gravity. It lures us in. Are there books or podcasts or YouTube channels that are not helping you? If you're caught in habitual sin, guys, by now you know exactly where the baited hook is. You know exactly where it is. You've been hooked by it so many times. And so don't linger waiting to get lured in. You know Lot in Genesis, he turned his tent door towards Sodom long before he moved there. And then I almost imagine his tent having like little feet like a cartoon. That's probably the way it went, right? Closer, closer, and then he's basically like the mayor, right? Because he just slowly drifted in. Turn your tent away from Sodom and, and turn your door the other way. Also, in, in addition to lingering, every fish has this in common. They believe the lie. Chances are, if you're stuck in a habitual sin pattern, you fall for the same lies over and over again. Something that most fish won't do. Guys, imagine this. Imagine, you know, a salesman comes to your door every day and sells you the same overpriced vacuum. You pay $1,000 every day, right? You wouldn't do that, right? Eventually, you'd be like, okay, I did it the last three days, but I'm not going to buy the vacuum again. But not so with habitual sin. It makes us stupid. It clouds our vision, right? And we immediately know we've been scammed by sin, and yet when the bait comes again, we're like, ooh, yesterday, right? And we're like, ooh, like that has a hook in it. You know that has a hook in it, right? If you're struggling to break free from some habitual sin, one thing that's super practical, and I give this as an assignment to guys that are dealing with like substance abuse or pornography or things like that, is write out the specific lies that sin makes you believe right before you do it. And they'll be the standard ones. It's the same probably six or seven. It's, it's really interesting when I've given this assignment to guys who struggle with pornography, and women do too, by the way, to almost the same degree. Um, but I'll only counsel the men with that. Um, but is, what's interesting is it's the same lies. I say write down the lies that pornography tells you that makes you do it, you know, that kind of convinces you to go ahead and do it, and it's the exact same lies every time. And I won't tell you what they are, but I would be interested in seeing yours. If that's something you struggle with, send it to me. Let's talk about it. Write down the lies you believe. Write yourself a letter. When you're sane, when you're like thinking clearly, you just got, you know, scammed by sin one more time, write a letter to yourself. Hey, you know, address it to yourself. Hey, Eric, you know, you're probably thinking this, this, and this. These are not true. Here's the scripture, right? Write a letter, your sane self, writing to your future stupid self right? A list of the things that you're inclined to believe, right? Because, um, and you know, you can set it for an email that would periodically email you, just kind of randomly, and then just pray to the Lord, like, Lord, have that email show up on the day I need it, right? But have a letter written to yourself. Um, temptation is like fishing. It's also like embryology. James here in verse 15, he uses embryology as an example, and he's really focused mostly on what is the outcome of sin. He says in verse 15, then desire when it is conceived, see that embryology language, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. This, this process is like embryology in the sense that it's slow, it's hidden, but its outcome is very predictable. It's the same thing every time. Desire, sin, death, brings forth death. Um, two things uh, to notice about that, about this um, bringing forth death. One of the things I want to mention to you guys is temptation. Uh, it's really important that we think clearly about temptation. So notice from this text that temptation itself is not sin. I think you kind of very finely deal with this, but temptation itself is not sin. Sin is disobeying God's commands, right? In thought, word, or deed. Temptation is seeing the bait and kind of maybe feeling its draw and hearing some of its lies, but not biting, okay? That's temptation, is to hear those things, feel that draw, but then if you turn from it, you've done nothing wrong. 
And I think this is really important because there's a lot of very godly believers who feel horribly guilty and condemned because they're constantly tempted, and they feel condemned by that. Like, what kind of person am I if I'm constantly getting, uh, you know, tempted by, by these things? by these things, and sometimes the enemy will use that to make you just kind of give up, because you're like, well, you know, I'm already sinning anyway. You're not, though. If you're tempted and you haven't given into it, and I would just say, refuse to feel condemned about being tempted. We know that Jesus was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. So that's a passage where we know temptation and sin are not equal. On the other hand, temptation is also not at all harmless, okay? It's not sin, but it's also not harmless, it is super dangerous. And temptation is a step right before sin, right? When we pray the Lord's Prayer, lead us not in temptation, we're praying like, Lord, help us stay in a place where we don't succumb to any kind of temptation, that as we go into trials, that we wouldn't fall into them. We can increase uh, the temptation that we have in our lives through living carelessly, right? Or decreasing in our vigilance over our hearts. Um, Luther said really famously, Martin Luther, he said, um, you can't help the birds flying over your head, but you can stop them from making a nest in your hair. Okay? And I think that's really helpful in temptation. You can't help what temptation comes in your mind, but you can help that you don't entertain it, you don't make a safe place for it, you don't encourage it in any way, you turn from it, you guard your heart vigilantly. And so temptation is something that it is not in itself sin, but it is extremely dangerous. And I just say, Think about your life and think about the areas that you're actually increasing your own temptation. You don't want to do that. You don't want to create an environment in your heart, in your mind, where temptation is high. Notice how the whole gestation ends. Look at verse 15. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. James is very straightforward here. I know this sounds really dark, but that's dark, right? That is dark. Sin is out to kill you. Some of you, you know, have sin kind of gestating inside of you, like this illustration is, because you don't really believe it's out to kill you. I don't know what you think you're getting from this sin gestating in your life, like, like it's going to be some cute baby when it comes out. You know, Mason and I yesterday were watching Aliens. That's how it comes out in your life, okay? This ain't no cute baby. This isn't something you want in you. This is out to kill you right? And so with sin, when we see it growing in our lives, we need to kill it at the early stages, quickly, not allowing it to develop, because the thing is, it wants to kill you. It's not a game. You know, I think a lot of times we think, well, I can manage sin. You know, I'm going to kind of keep it around as a pet, kind of keep it at a low level and kind of, you know, you know, let it do this much, but not that much. It doesn't work that way, guys. Look at what it wants. It doesn't want to just be your pet. It doesn't want to just bring you down a little bit. It wants to destroy you, right? Sin is out to kill you. And, you know, for those of you who trust in Christ, Jesus has taken away the eternal death of sin. But guys, there's still a lot more death that can happen in your life even if you're, you're saved and, and you don't have to worry about you know, eternal death. There's plenty of damage that can happen. Think about David. Think about King David and his sin with Bathsheba and the death that resulted right after that. Guys, sin is out to kill you. It's out to kill your joy. It's out to kill your passion for Christ. It's out to kill your witness. It's out to kill your mission. It's out to kill your marriage. It's out to kill your family. It's out to kill your soul. Sin is out to kill you. And James lists a whole bunch of them that are out to kill you. Um, James talks about your anger is out to kill you. We'll talk about that next week. But your anger wants to kill you. It wants to destroy your family. It wants to destroy your relationship with your kids. It wants to destroy your friendships. It wants to destroy this church. Um, your resentments are out to kill you. 
Your judgmentalism, James says, is out to kill you. Your jealousy is out to kill you. Your selfish ambition is out to kill you. Your verbal abuse, James talks about, is out to kill you. Your gossip is out to kill you. Your pride is out to kill you. Your grumbling, even, is out to kill you. That's just in James. We know from the rest of Scripture, your lust is out to kill you. Um, How many friendships and marriages and families and churches have been killed by those kinds of things? Right? Your sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Don't play around with it. I think we've gotten too comfortable with certain besetting sins in our lives, and we think, you know, I can keep it around as a little pet, and it's not going to do it, it's not going to harm anybody. Dude, it's a dragon. This thing will grow, and it's out to kill you. You know, you treat it like a game, guys, but the guns are loaded. You know, like kids, we're playing army out there, and we don't realize we're playing with loaded guns. It's out to kill you. One temptation that I think I should really mention this morning, I know this, this morning's heavy, but it should be. So it's going to be. When it's a heavy text, we're going to go all heavy. And when it's like a perky text, we'll go all perky, okay? But this is heavy, so we're going all heavy. So go with me. One temptation that I feel like we should mention today that's really common with Christians in our area is adultery. And you think, well, not in the church. Yes, in the church. Like crazy, right? And it starts in our culture. It tends to start at work. starts in the gym. starts at school. starts with, like, reconnecting with somebody you knew from before online. And then there's private messaging, and then there's long talks, and, you know, and you think it's harmless in the beginning, but it's not. You know, the Proverbs are very explicit about this temptation. I just want to read you from Proverbs 7, because it fits really well with this James passage. Proverbs 7, 21. And and this is a male example, but feel free to switch it to a female example, because actually adultery with Christian wives is extremely common, okay? And so take a look at this. Proverbs 7, 21 says this. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. And with her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. Okay, what's an ox going to the slaughter? Dumb, right? You know, I've actually, I'm a veterinarian, and we did some work in the Central Valley. We went to a slaughterhouse, saw the whole process. Those cows, when they're going up the ramp to the slaughterhouse, they're mostly dairy cows, and they have little sprayers go on them, get them clean before they go in and get the captive bolt right in their head. When they got up and the sprayers went on them, you know what they did? They let their milk down. They thought they were getting milked. They're that dumb. Like right before the bullet in the head, they're, they're letting their milk down because they're dairy cows, and that's what they're trained. Sprayer, oh, we're getting milked, right? That's the way sin works, is it entices us and confuses us and makes us, you know, uh, not sober-minded anymore. So like an ox, it goes to the slaughter, and as a stag is caught till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. Underline that. He does not know that it will cost him his life. Because there's all those rationalizations like, oh, it'll be fine, you know? Even if you know, I move on with this other person, my kids will be fine, everything's going to be fine. It's not going to be fine. It'll cost you your life. Listen to me and be attentive to my words, he says. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her path. For many a victim as she laid low, as her slain are a mighty throng, her house is the way to Sheol. It goes down to the chambers of death. That fits perfectly with James, right? And so some of you guys, you need to wake up. Sin is out to kill you. Treat it as the deadly threat that it is. And I love John Owen. John Owen has a book, Mortification of Sin. Awesome book to read. And he says, be killing sin before it's killing you. Like, it's war. That's all there is to it. 
Um, and we have weapons against this. We have weapons of prayer. You know, if you're in a place, and maybe that's not your temptation, it's not adultery, but some other temptation, have you prayed and fasted until God changed your heart? Because I think it's so interesting. You'll talk to people, and they'll talk about, you know, the sin, it keeps suck, sucking me in, I don't have no power. And it's like, have you prayed and fasted until this changes? Like, have you taken this seriously in prayer? And if you're, you know, in a, not in a good place, prayer. God's Word, guys. we got to know God's Word. we got to believe it. we got to make this book somehow our own thoughts. Like, this needs to become our thoughts. We need to trust it. We need to trust it more than anything that we think in our own minds. We need to trust this more than our own thoughts. We come to go, well, that sounds judgmental. We need to go like, that's my problem, right? Or, wow, I don't know if that's always true. That's my problem, right? We need to assume that this is right and we're wrong. Every time, right? It's God's Word. The other great powerful weapon you have against temptation is Christian friendship. Take a look at uh, Hebrews 3. This is such an awesome passage. You really should turn here. Hebrews 3.12. Hebrews 3.12. You know, underline it, star it. This is this. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Guys, one of the best weapons that you have against temptation, against being kind of dragged in and lured and enticed and, and sin being out to kill you, is Christian friendship. That's what this is. This is Christian friendship. This is what real Christian friendship looks like. That you would confess your sin to a friend who will actually hold you accountable, right? The, you know what that's called? Military term? That's burning the bridge, you know, you have a, an army, and they're going into another country. They go across the bridge in a foreign land so that they won't turn around. They won't retreat. Well, they burn the bridge or burn the boats is another option. You're basically burning your way out. When you come to a friend, a good Christian friend, you say, this is my temptation. This is the sin I'm falling into. I need help. You know what you're doing? You're lighting that thing on fire, and it's awesome, and you should do it today. Do it while you still feel like you can do it. Burn the bridge right? Because you need somebody that's going to hold you accountable, that's going to speak truth to you. You know, one of the effects of sin, it's called the noetic effect of sin, and the noetic effect of sin means that sin makes us stupid, isn't it? It's like an anesthesia. That's why in the New Testament it talks about a lot about sober-minded. It's not necessarily talking sober-minded there about not being drunk, though that fits in there. It's about a set of mind that's foggy, and you guys all remember before you were Christians, you had a really foggy sense of who God is and what was right. And when we're being drawn into temptation, we're not thinking straight, right? There's that old Greek uh, myth about, you know, there was a, a group of guys and they were sailing in and, and they knew they were coming into an area where the sirens would be singing. They look like beautiful women, but they're really not. They're these creatures that lure you in and make your ship burst up and you drown, right? So the sirens, they sing, but you... Come in. And so right before they came in, you know, the, the captain, he goes, tie me to the mast and shove wax in my ears so that when I hear that call, I, I won't succumb to it. That's what we do when we submit to Christian friends is we say, there are going to be times when I'm not thinking straight and I want you to tie me up. I want you to, to keep me in the right place because I'm not going to think straight when I'm in temptation. I need somebody to call me out on this. And guys, it's super amazing actually how many people in our church do this. It's a huge evidence of grace. So people talk about, well, you know, in church, uh, people put on their church face and they kind of fake and think everything's okay. Not here, not well. If you are doing it, you're not doing it very well. Because I, I see a lot of people sharing their sin, talking really frankly about where they're at, saying, keep me accountable, pray for me, meet with me, give me scripture, help me to keep going. 
And that's a huge evidence of God's grace, guys. There's nothing better than that. And so if, if from this message somebody, you know, confesses some serious sin to you, the first thing you should think is not, oh my gosh, how could you do that? No. First thing you should think is God's at work. This is a huge evidence of grace. People are sometimes surprised by how excited I am when I hear some horrible sin, somebody confesses to me. My first thought is like, God's at work. This is great. Let's, let's tackle this together. We have a solution in Scripture for this. There's no solution for you staying in hiding, but you've, you've talked it out, and it's huge evidence of God's grace, guys. Um, and uh, I want to ask you this. Are you living so openly with anyone that they would notice if you had an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God? Do you have friendships like that? Would they notice that you have an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God? Would they notice that you're being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? If not, you're in great danger because you're very likely to just trust your own desires when trials and temptations come. So that was the first part. Dark. This part. 13 through 15. And so now we want to look at, we don't want to trust our own desires, but what we want to trust, we want to trust God's goodness and His desires. So we're going to look at that real quick. Look at verse 17. Trust God's goodness. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Guys, this is so practical, because when we're in trials and temptations, we tend to distrust God's goodness. We tend to distrust his word and his commands. And we're only going to obey him to the extent that we actually trust him right? And so what sin wants to do is it wants you to erode your sense of God's goodness. You think, well, perhaps he doesn't have my best interests in mind, or perhaps, you know, I know better. But James wants to show us how good God is. The first thing he does is he says that every good gift comes exclusively from God. Look, look at verse 17 again. Every good and perfect gift is from above, from the Father of lights. Notice that James isn't just saying that all the gifts from God are good. He's saying that all the good gifts are from God. That's a different thing, right? There aren't any good gifts apart from God. God is the giver of all good gifts. And this helps us, guys, because we tend to believe lies, like that God's keeping good things from me. According to verse 15, he's just keeping death from you. Uh, we tend to believe the lie that, you know, if I obey God fully, I'll miss out on some happiness. There's somehow greater joy outside the kingdom, you know, outside in the world. Some of you guys start to think that, you know, like living the Christian life, to you, it feels like living in Alcatraz. And you can see the city life across the bay in San Francisco. You see the lights, you hear the parties, and you think, God is keeping all happiness from me. That's when sin is deceiving you. That's when you're getting that hardened heart. Because, guys, God gives every good and perfect gift. There are no good gifts outside of his kingdom. He's keeping you from Alcatraz. He's keeping you from slavery to sin. Also, God is unchangeably good in himself. Look at verse 17 again. It says, he's the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Um, these lights here are most likely the heavenly lights, like sun, moon, stars, and planets. Because the word variation and shadow were actually in that time astronomy terms. What he's saying here is that God's goodness doesn't change and it has no shadow. His, his goodness has no variation. God's goodness doesn't change like the sun and the moon and the planets and stars do. I've got this app, Sky Guide, where I'll look and see where Mars is and see where Jupiter is and things like that. You can find all these things. You can just see them without a telescope if you use one of these apps because they move around. I mean, they aren't, we're moving, they're moving. There's lots of movement. But 
We're like that, guys. We're variable. We're unstable. But God isn't like that, guys. We don't have to catch God on a good day. He's not variable. He doesn't change. God is good. All the time. All the time. God is good. He is good all the time. That's what this text says. God's goodness has no shadow. I love this part. Look at verse 17, the second half. He has no shadow. God is all good. Not just as he's good all the time, but all of him is good. It's all goodness. There's no shadow. You know, most of us, I would venture to say all of us, have some shadow, right? There's some shadowy part, guys. But there is no shadow to God's goodness. If you want to see God's perfect, shadowless goodness, take a look at Jesus. Take a look at his life. Jesus said that anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. I mean, think about Jesus' goodness even in the last week of his life. Think about him weeping over Jerusalem and and the mercy of his goodness there. Think of his goodness in his life-giving teaching. Or think of Jesus' goodness in humbly washing his disciples' feet. Or think of Jesus' goodness in offering himself to the soldiers. And he says, let my, my disciples go. Right? Or think of his goodness in taking our place on the cross, dying for your sin. Because, guys, you're not saved by your ability to resist sin. You're saved by Jesus' ability to resist sin. That he is your perfect righteousness. He is the one who resisted all sin. And, guys, in Jesus' life, there's no shadow. You know, you don't look at Jesus' life and go, yeah, it was all pretty good except this part, right? 100% light. No shadow. Same with God. We shouldn't think of God, we shouldn't think of Jesus as somehow God's good side. Have you ever thought that before? You know, there's God and kind of his good side is Jesus, right? That's the part that, you know, is, is good and maybe there's some darker side to God. But Jesus said, if anyone has seen me, he's seen the Father. When you look at Jesus' life, you're seeing exactly what God's like. You believe that? When you look at Jesus, you're seeing exactly what God's like. Michael Reeves said this, there is no God in heaven who is unlike Jesus. Let us then be rid of that horrible sly idea that behind Jesus, the friend of sinners, there is a more sinister being that is thinner on compassion and grace. It can never be. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We're the shadows. He's the light. And he's drawn us out of the darkness to confess our sin. And he's put the life of Jesus in us. And he's making all things good, guys. He's making all things good and starting with us. Look at verse 18. He says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He's making all things good and he's starting with us. This is a repeat of the birth image, right? The dark birth image that we had. This is a different one, right? That he has caused us to be brought forth or birthed by the word of truth. If you're a Christian today, you're a Christian today not ultimately because of your will, You're ultimately a Christian today because of his own will, he brought you forth by the word of truth. He birthed you through the word, and it was his idea. Because, guys, we all have started off spiritually dead. We we have no desire to love God, no desire to live for God, no desire to uh, live with God. It's tragic. And yet God, through his word, has, if you're a Christian today, has birthed you through his word. The Holy Spirit made you alive to him. And of all the good and perfect gifts that, that God's given, that's the best one, isn't it? The best one's the new birth. The best one's the fact that you have God as your Father. The Father of lights is your Father. And now He's teaching you to become more and more the kid you should be with Him. And so all of our trials and temptations, guys, we've got to remember that God is making all things new. He's making all things new. What did He call us here? That we should be what? The first fruits of his creatures. What is he saying here? He's saying that we are actually the beginning of a harvest. And the full harvest is the new creation. 
He's going to make the whole world new. The whole physical world he's going to make new. You can read about at the end of the book of Revelation 21 and 22. And we're the first fruits of that, guys. And so as we gather as a church community, what we are is we're a first fruits. We're actually starting to already experience what the world will be like when Jesus returns. Our church family, as we gather, is a statement about the future. As we gather and worship, we're declaring that there's a new king, King Jesus, and that he's coming to bring the kingdom, and he's going to make all things new. His kingdom is already not yet. You're part of the already part. Isn't that cool? You're the first fruits. And so as we live together as a church, we're announcing the king and his kingdom. And so when you're tempted, guys... Remember God's goodness. Remember every good and perfect gift from Him. Remember that there is no shadowy side to God. And I think that's something a lot of us deal with. There is no shadow. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. And we should remember, guys, He's good and that He's making all things new. Let's pray. Father, we pray, help us. Lord, um, every person here is in a different stage, in a different place in their life. Some are in the heat of temptation. Some aren't feeling the heat of temptation. Some are seeing the danger of their sin. Some are hardened to their sin. So many different places we could be at, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would, as we take the Lord's Supper, completely wake us up. Lord, your new covenant promise is that you would give us a new heart. That you would take out a heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. And so, Lord, as we assemble for For the Lord's Supper, as your kids, we say, bring it. Give us new hearts for you. Fill us with your spirit anew. Lord, we pray that we would be drawn by your goodness to confess our sin, knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We pray as we take the Lord's Supper that we would rejoice in your goodness. You are good. You are kind. You are merciful. We are a obstinate and difficult people to deal with, and yet you love us again and again. You love us just like you love your son, Jesus. I pray, for Lord, for those who are here and do not know you, have not confessed you. Lord, I pray that you make very real the death that sin brings, an eternal death, an everlasting separation. Lord, I pray that no one here would experience that, but all would come to believe you. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. And so as we take the Lord's Supper, we look, we look both back and we look forward. We look back to Jesus' death. Paul says that we, when we take the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there's a backward and a forward. As you take the bread, which is gluten-free, remember the broken body of Jesus for you. And as you take the cup, remember his blood that was poured out for you. And then look forward. Look forward to the fact that this is the first fruits of the kingdom. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.